Rainforest Mind with me, Casper Thompson. We've got builders plumbing in water to the coach house renovation at the moment. Coach house conversion sounds a bit grand, doesn't it? Essentially, we're getting the coach house made into a space that my colleague Jana Marty can use as an art therapy studio to see clients in, and maybe for other people as well. So there is um, there's some sort of dharmic foundation to the work relieving people's suffering through working one-to-one with them. Anyway, there was a huge drilling noise going on as I halfway through the last intro that I recorded, so hopefully that won't happen in this couple of minutes. I'm really just here to introduce my conversation with Venerable Ayeshe. I say conversation, I did most of the talking, which was great because I really enjoyed listening to her, and also we couldn't get that new software to work that I mentioned last week so uh, my voice still sounded like I was at the end of a frayed telephone wire but the audio for her speaking is not is pretty good actually so that's great. Anyway we, she's talking about socially engaged Buddhism which is very close to my own heart. Naturally I think the more open-hearted you are the more obvious it is that there are things that you can help with in the world and the more you feel inspired and comfortable doing so. I will say, listening to Aya talking, it also, as well as inspiring me, it made me question, am I really doing enough? Is there more that I can do? Which every now and again is a good question to ask, I think. We don't like to go out of our comfort zones, do we? That's why they're called comfort zones. But sometimes having a little nudge in that direction doesn't hurt. At the moment, my social engaged Buddhism is through the network of Buddhist organisations as well as with the temple here. And the MBO, Network of Buddhist Organisations in the UK, every year we promote Buddhist Action Month in June. So if you are a Buddhist and you're listening and you want to get involved, drop me a line and we can send out the resource pack to you and to your local Buddhist group and see if we can get you doing some helping activities of some sort or something that's good for the planet this year's theme or the theme for next year rather because we're literally in the last few weeks of this year is climate action or something like that we haven't decided on the exact wording anyway it was very inspiring listening to Aya talking about what brought her to socially engaged Buddhism and about the work that she's now doing particularly the work out in India with the Dalits who converted to Buddhism from Hinduism and were members of the untouchable caste, as well as work with women and girls. I, yes, she ordained in 2001, 2001. Goodness knows what's going on there. I just was looking at the date. <laughs> she ordained in 2001 and... Uh, arrived in India in 2004. Anyway, I'll let her speak about her history because she does talk us through um, some of her history with Buddhism and some of what led her to social engagement. And it's great. And I really enjoyed listening. And I hope that you will too. Thanks for joining us this week. And um, here's Ayayashe talking. Because I didn't always... Um, intend to be a socially engaged Buddhist you know I just uh, 
was really inspired by Dharma practice and was seeing that the world was kind of messed up and I was kind of messed up and looking for a path to peace. And um, I think traditionally that in the minds of most Buddhists that would be somehow leaving the world, mm. you know, leaving samsara behind, leaving delusion behind, um, leaving pain behind, leaving all those difficult, tricky human experiences and frailties behind. A kind of escapism, <laughs> in yeah. a way. Um, extinction Buddhism, my teacher calls it. What does he call it? Extinction. He? He, extinction Buddhism. Extinction. Mm. That up. is one of the terms yeah. for, for enlightenment, right? Niroda, yeah, cessation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I ordained as a Buddhist nun at the age of 23. And I had been running a Dharma center for five years where a lot of people with mental health issues lot of gay people, um, older people, you know, people who are marginalized by society in some way mm. came for comfort and inspiration. And I just started to become aware that there was this whole scope outside the middle class Catholic family I was raised in. Mm. And um, as soon as I became a Buddhist nun, it was like I became a, a social outcast slash freak. So I started to um, attract people who are even more socially marginalized yeah. than myself. And, and I started to understand that when people talk about racism and, and sexism and homophobia um, and classism, that they're not actually lying, you know, like, because if it's not your experience, you just kind of dismiss it, you know, like, yeah. oh, surely they must be exaggerating. I mean, why are they talking about something that happened 100 years ago? If, it, if you've never been marginalized and if you've never experienced discrimination, it's just so easy to sit in your privilege and not be aware of it. Mm. And then uh, I started to feel quite um, oppressed in my Buddhist center, you know, like people would say, you know, for example, the Tibetan Lama stayed for free, whereas the Western nuns who actually did all the work paid and had to work in outside jobs. And... Um, you know, people would show so much respect to the Tibetan monks and bring food um, and they kind of ask us to clean the toilet. We were seen as, you know, uh, free labor, basically. Um, and we weren't nearly, we weren't somehow the real deal because we weren't Tibetan and we weren't men. And then, uh, you know, it kind of came to a head when one visiting Tibetan Lama said to me, pray to be reborn as a man. And, um, and he argued that only men could get enlightened. And, you know, I, I kind of grew up in a fairly progressive family and my father told me I could do anything and I never really felt particularly um, discriminated against, you know, well, you know, sexual harassment was there, but, but not in such an overt way, you know. And, uh, yeah, it made me kind of become aware that there is structural violence and there is oppression and it made me aware that people who are even less better off than me, for example, people of color or disabled people, were even more marginalized. And I started to understand that not everyone, that people suffered, you know, and they suffered for reasons that were mostly unnecessary. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, once you put on robes, people just want to tell you their problems. Um, I had a woman with schizophrenia telling me she had demons in her head and uh, I had a man tell me he was having an affair with his someone else outside his marriage and I had another man 
confessed to me he was a child molester. And um, it was, you know, I don't know why. I was just so thrown in the deep end. So I just became aware. It was like becoming clairvoyant, you know, somehow um, all of these people opened up Mm. and and sometimes what they opened up was quite shocking. And then I just started, uh, after a year in the Buddhist center, I... Um, decided I didn't want to support centres that don't support women anymore, you know, and um, I didn't see a future there being treated like that. So um, I decided to live on faith and everybody said, you're crazy, no one can live like that in the Western world, you know, there's no future for monastics there, anachronisms. And, um, you know, it's pretty much true because... uh, around 80% of us disrobe and have no support. Yeah. And pretty much everyone I ordained with has disrobed. But I was very stubborn and I, I decided that somehow I would survive. Uh, and I, I started, you know, people invited me to teach meditation in drug and alcohol rehab centres and at Alcoholics Anonymous and in schools, prisons, HIV hospices. So I just started to meet all these people, you know, pregnant women who were just... Um, coming out of addiction, who had every, every reason to live, you know, were trying to stay sober and get custody of their children, um, a, a whole HIV hospice filled with men, um, with, you know, who are mostly queer, queer men. Uh, I just, you know, saw that there was so much uh, suffering in the world that needed to be responded to, mm. and I just started to think that my own peace was not enough. Mm. When the whole world is uh, on fire, you know, how do you, um, how do you face that? You know, and to just seek your own liberation when everybody is um, struggling and suffering and everybody is just like you and, and what they feel is sometimes much worse than what you've gone through. Mm. Um, it just kind of made me put my life in perspective and re- reorientate the purpose of my life. Mm. They're quite a natural and, response. Yeah. So, I, you know, I did volunteer work as well as, you know, maintain my own Buddhist practice and study. And I travelled from one monastery to another because there isn't really a monastery in my, in my tradition that doesn't charge Western nuns. Um, and nobody believed me. Like, when I talked about how we'd been exploited, you know, how Western nuns disrobed and how Tibetans were reified because of their culture. No one believed me, which was another kind of shock, you know, (laughs) which kind of further um, made me identify with the underdog. Um, And I just start, I started to, you know, inform myself. I started to study social work and to look at oppression and look at, and understand structural violence and patriarchy and um, kind of, all of these, yeah, these internalized forms of oppression we have. And I started to be drawn to the autobiographies of people of color and people, you know, disabled people and activists like Martin Luther King Jr. and Thich Nhat Hanh. And, uh, you know, just to kind of understand what, how they dealt with those things and, and strategies to deal with poverty. And I, I started to understand that, you know, um, poverty is gender-based and it, it's tied in with gender oppression. And most of the poor people in the world are women and girls. Most of those who are illiterate, those who face child marriage, those who work for no money and live in more poverty, those who face more violence because of their gender, 
um, in, in, in the form of sexual violence are women. Um, you know, the majority of people who are human trafficked are women. Um, so there were just so many, the majority of people who don't have autonomy to make decisions about their own body and their own lives are women and girls. So I started to kind of understand the best way to help was to work for uh, women and girls mm. and to educate men about equality. Um, and then I went to India five years after ordaining as a nun and I uh, thought it'd be easier there. You know, I thought the Tibetans would finally accept me and see the sincerity of my spiritual search. And, um, you know, little did I realize they're traumatized refugees who really don't have a lot of room for other communities because they're just trying to preserve their own culture, you know. Um, and, and they think their culture is, is the best. So <laughs> they're not really interested in entertaining anyone who's not Tibetan. Yeah. Um, and so I, I studied Tibetan for a few years, but I realized I'm just never going to be a scholar. And it was very dry, you know, after the exciting communal atmosphere of Dharma centers and the, um, the work that made my life feel so worthwhile, even though I was always struggling to just survive another day financially. The work that I found meaningful was um, teaching meditation and and um, being socially engaged. It just kind of opened my heart because all the teachings of Mahayana Buddhism point to the ideal of the Bodhisattva, the one who hears the cries of the world, the one who is compassionately working towards the liberation of all beings from suffering. And to me, that ideal is most fully lived in, in socially engaged Buddhism. Mm. So... All around me in India, I saw, um, you know, unlike the Tibetans who actually kind of lived in a welfare state and had quite a lot of support from foreign charities, um, the Indian people, you know, still have a lot of uh, gender-based violence, a lot of child marriage, um, more malnutrition than sub-Saharan Africa, you know, bride burnings, um, child mortality, all kinds of things, farmer suicides, caste-based injustice, social workers' paradise, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, if you get your means so I, doing that sort of work, then it's a great place to be. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit perverted of me to talk like that. Um, <laughs> so, but, yeah, I just saw that there was a lot of work to be done. And, and um, particularly it came to a head when I was in Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha was born. And, uh, you know, there's the kind of luxury air-conditioned hotels um, with a six-foot-high barbed wire fence out the front. And then there's the people who live in, you know, houses that look like haystacks mm. and, uh, you know, marry their daughters off at 14 and beg for a living because they make more money begging than they do working in the field. Um, and I just thought, you know, which side of the fence would the Buddha be on? And I felt a sense of gratitude to the Indian people for giving us Buddhism. Mm. And, um, and I just thought I really should help Indians. And as soon as I thought that, a man appeared before me and asked where, an Indian man, asked where he could get Buddhist teachings. And um, he, he turned out to be an Ambedkarite man um, who is in the Sri Ratna community. And... Um, he told me about Dr. Ambedkar, who's like the Martin Luther King Jr. of the Ambedkarite people. And he told me of their, how they'd converted to Buddhism in uh, 1959 
in Dikshabhumi, like 100,000 Buddhist yeah. people, previously known as untouchables or Dalits, so-called ex-untouchable, um, and how they'd done that because they were oppressed by the Hindu caste system, which had made them unable to get education, uh, you know, basically slaves for, mm. for several thousand years, victims of violence, rape, not even allowed to go into their own temples, mm. you know. And if I'm if um, I recall correctly, the, in the untouchable caste, even if their shadow fell upon somebody of a higher caste, that person would would feel polluted, so that they'd be that's how sort of yeah excluded that, they were. Like a few a few hundred years ago, they actually had to tie a uh, palm frond um, to their waist so that it, it erased their footsteps, yeah. um, and they had to carry wooden bells around their neck to beat and to, to inform people that they were coming to the uh, village, you know, and the, the women were regularly raped by uh, landlord caste men and, uh, you know, if there was any uprising, people, uh, the whole community would, would be, you know, lynched. Just, just terrible. I mean, uh, pretty much what white people did to African-Americans but religiously sanctioned yeah. as well, you know. So not only was it social oppression it was religiously spiritually sanctified untouchability you know in the even in the eyes of god you're untouchable because of your bad karma yeah. so called you know karma interpreted as a as a form of punishment or destiny rather than as action that's something you can change mm -hmm. which is actually a very um pernicious interpretation of of karma you know it's not really Absolutely. what karma means at least in buddhism yeah it's like well your karma said you were like that, so I don't need to do anything because you deserved it and you're just living out the results of it. And if you work and if you do something differently or you do the right ritual, then mm. next time maybe it'll be better. But that's your business and it's nothing to do with me. And actually that interpretation of, of karma is, is what stops a lot of modern Buddhists getting involved or caring about social justice. You know, it becomes a form of apathy. Mm. But actually karma means everything is interconnected, you know that we're interbeing, that everything we have comes from others. You know? The fact that we can write our own name is because a teacher taught us to read and write. The fact that we have this human body is our mother's kindness in giving us a human body. Um, the fact that we didn't starve to death is because farmers grow the food. You know, The fact that women can vote is because suffragettes fought for it. The fact that children don't work in factories is because of the union movement. Mm. So the fact that we have, you know, beautiful art is because someone imagined it and created it and supported it. There's nothing so, that we can claim for ourselves. Exactly. And, and to understand that means to understand that we have uh, an intimate relationship with all of life and therefore a duty to repay that kindness, you know, that taking care of ourselves is caring for others and caring for others is caring for ourselves because we're, we have this sacred bond with all, all of creation, all of heaven and earth, that everything is connected to us, you know. Mm. So by harming the earth, by harming the water, we harm ourselves. By harming others, we harm ourselves. That's beautiful. But also, I think even beyond that for me, when I look, you know, the water is much more immense and important than I am. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not like, oh, if I save the water, then I'll be okay. It's like, well, save the water for its own sake. True. I'm just a little yeah. speck on the, you know, <laughs> on the universe.
True. If the water disappears, everybody's in trouble. If I disappear, you know. That's true. That's yeah. true. And, um, yeah, so from there I went to Nagpur and I stayed with this man's family and um, I uh, basically developed a great sympathy for the, for the Ambed Karat people because very few Buddhist people knew uh, about them. Yeah. And a lot of them, you know, said they're Buddhist, but they didn't really know a lot about Buddhism and they didn't accept some of the mainstream Buddhist ideas like rebirth and karma for very good reason, really, because they've suffered so much because yeah. of those ideas. My experience um, with the movement in India is that it's also, it, it can be very appropriately politicised, but also that that can tip over into just one going, okay, well, we want to be on the top and oppress everybody else. Now, this sort of anger that comes up. Yeah. I mean, I think that anger is also quite understandable because absolutely. they're really yeah. still not being understood, you know. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, um, the depth of their suffering and the real fight for justice. I mean, lynchings and gang rapes against Dalits are still going on, you know, in villages. Dalits who dare to marry outside their caste are still murdered. Um, Dalit girls are still raped, you know. So there's... Um, when, pe when people don't hear you, what you say, you speak louder and louder and louder. Yeah, so yeah of course. That it's not that they necessarily shouldn't be angry, but that I can see mm. there's sort of a need or, or a place that Buddhist teachings can really meet that and support it to flower into something. Yeah. But what I also learned from these people was that you can't teach people spiritual things when their stomach is empty. It's patronising. You know, that, they, that human beings first need basic facilities to reach their human potential so that they're not in a constant state of flight or fight. Yeah, of so that they're not just struggling to survive, you know. People can't think of abstract things like enlightenment when they're just struggling for their next meal. Yeah. So what I realised was that um, skillful means, you know, upaya, the, the way that a bodhisattva tries to help is appropriate to the people and the time and these people needed education for their children food shelter human rights food security income security gender equality safety from domestic violence mm. um, all of those things before they could even think about um, you know emptiness or yeah. the Majjamika philosophy <laughs> yeah, sure. so you know at first I, I, I would I go guess it's easy I guess it's easy to remember the Buddha just having his beg begging bowl and robe and doing all of that spiritual practice and forget that he was massively supported by lay people and actually despite living in one sense from day to day probably didn't have to worry too much about where his next meal was coming from the Buddha's father was a king Exactly, yeah. It's like Prince Harry suddenly becoming a religious teacher. Yeah, he was very well connected, you know. Yeah. So he had a choice. For him, simplicity was a choice. And simplicity is different to abject poverty, yeah. where you don't have a choice. You know, a monk chooses simplicity, but poverty takes away all... You can't really give something up that you never had. Mm. You know? So, um, yeah, I mean... Uh, I would go to houses and chant, you know, and then someone would put a dying baby in my arms and say, please, 
you know, holy mother chant for this baby. And I realized very quickly, you know, what this child needs is not chanting. This child needs $2 medicine, you know, that will save its life. And I realized that because of my white privilege, I could access those things much more easily than these people. And it would be a, a sin for me not to help them when I had the capacity to. So I just went home and I started talking about, oh, here's a photo of this girl. You know, she needs sponsorship for school. This girl needs a school uniform. This boy needs a bike to get to school. This woman needs money to train in computers. What do you think? And, you know, pensioners, single mothers, um, school teachers, normal people would just, like, pull money out of their pocket and say, take it. And, um, and that's how we started to make a difference with Bodhicitta Foundation. Mm. And... Uh, we, you know, we are, we, I looked, I lived with the people for a year, the Ambedkarite people, and I asked them what they needed. I didn't impose my ideas on them right. and what their priorities were, were, were for their children, you know, education, mm. job training for women. Because if you invest in a, in a woman, she'll put 90% of the money into her family, education and medicine. Whereas if you invest in a man, he'll only put 50% of his income into the family and the rest is spent on other things. based on surveys in developing countries so um it makes sense to empower women and girls and children um so that's what we focus on we have a women's job training center we have uh 50 children sponsored to go to school we have a girls home with 30 girls aged from around 14 to 25 who are studying in high school and university and they're going to become social workers and then go back to their villages and train other women and become agents of change there. Um, and we also have like a food program that cooks 6,000 meals per year for undernourished children. We have sometimes an emergency ambulance service. Um, and, and so that's, you know, and we also take care of uh, quite a few animals so that's basically, we have a community centre and we also lead, like we have a spiritual side as well. We lead retreats and meditation classes. Um, but, you know, the main focus is is on establishing these people in basic, you know, human dignity and basic income security. So those two things are, you know, one side is the spiritual side and the other side is the social work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I get, and, and so it, a lot of the work is transforming the conditions that people are in. Yes. Yes. Because you just can't imagine, uh, well, maybe these days with uh, austerity you can imagine, but, you know, when you go past and you see someone, uh, you know, begging with maggots in their eyes or a woman who has had acid thrown on her and her skin has been grafted to her shoulder because you know she said no to a man for a date you know stuff like that you just you just can't imagine the kind of things that you see and those things affect you and and that means that you can never be a bystander again Mm. that you actually have to morally take action to uh to do something you know you just can't forget um those things Mm. people do forget of course you know, people they haven't seen what I've seen. See, but I think that the, there's a, that they do that by building a wall in their own minds. So there's a loss to them in that forgetting. Yeah. Experience. But, you know, for the people who've really seen, like maybe they lost their child or maybe, 
you know, something happened or they've lived on the street, you know, for those people they can never forget. And those people will be activists for their entire life probably. Mm, I would, yeah, I, I guess I, I was sort of thinking of people who, from the West who travel to places like India and see all those things and then come back yeah. and two weeks later nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Yeah, maybe they don't know those people as well. Like if you really connect yeah. with them and take time to get to know them. Of course. Then, you know, for, for me, I was just, like one time I saw a, a, a little girl with a baby who was begging and this baby was uh, two months old and weighed one and a half kg and was just like a little skeleton. And I took it to the doctor and the doctor said, this baby will be dead in one or two days. Mm. And I asked the little girl, where did you get this baby? And she said, oh, you know, they sold it to me. And I have to make money or they'll, um, they'll torture me, you know. But she, she was too young to care for this baby properly and there was nothing I could do because I'd get accused of kidnapping. So I just held this little baby in my arms and I thought, you know, what is the difference between this baby and one born in Australia and why should there be a difference just yeah. because of their, their have brown skin? You know, this could be my child, you know. So for me, um, the, the injustice of that, of just that human beings really are equal and that mm. they should have the same opportunities, you know. Yeah. And there is no shortage of, there is enough resources for everyone in the world. There is enough for everybody's need, but not enough for everybody's greed. Mm. And um, I, I just I just can't forget now. And I was a street kid myself, you know, growing up. My father died when I was young and that made me also taste a different side of life. Yeah, sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like this this process of meeting people and getting to know them and living with them and being next to them in their suffering just sort of organically the heart opens and there's this natural upwelling of compassion and reaching out and I must do something about this. And that what the teachings of them maybe is, is perhaps giving you a sense of understanding how that works at all different layers of society and, and, and the particular forms of, of interconnectedness in terms of structural oppression. But the, the core of this social engagement is not doing it because the teaching says this or somebody told me that, but simply because I saw somebody suffering like, how could I not do something? I think my, um, my social engagement was definitely facilitated by the idea of bodhicitta. Mm. The training in bodhicitta, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, we do this meditation called reflection on the kindness of the mother. And first we recognize the kindness of our mother in this life. And then we go on to recognize that everybody has been our mother. Um, and I think I, I did that quite a lot. And I, I just got all these flooded feelings of compassion and it mm. made me feel good. <laughs> and I kind of realized that it's the purpose of life. You know, that I realized that... A love that is a life that has no love, a life that is not connected to relationships with other people based on doing good, based on lifting people up. It's just a life without that is not so meaningful, mm -hmm. it's very lonely. Whereas a life filled with love and filled with uh, care is um, it's hard, but it's also very meaningful and very joyful. Parts of what sort of is what fed, has fed your heart is this remembering and connecting to what you've received, the compassion and care that you've received through generations, mm. women particularly, others particularly. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. You know, as a pure Buddhist, 
my practice is connecting to Amitabha. And of course, the times when I feel most held in that love myself are the times when I'm most available to open myself to others. Because personally, I'm not tipping over into fight or flight. My own sort of centre is secure in that. And then there's space for me to meet other people and to be other people suffering. Yeah. I mean, I think one can't underestimate the importance of keeping up one's own practice and doing self-care and having compassion for yourself as well. Because if you don't have a strong practice, you're going to drown in the never-ending need of those who suffer. Yeah, because we're also human beings. Yeah. My thanks to Ayeshe again. I really enjoyed listening. A couple of days ago when we had the conversation live and just now when I was putting the podcast together. If you want to support her work, visit bodhicitta-vihara.com. That's B-O-D-H-I-C-I-T-T-A-V-I-H-A-R-A.com. I'll put links to that on my page as well. Uh, the MBO's website is, uh, let me just type that into my little computer, mbo.org.uk if you would like information about Buddhist Action Month. And uh, my website, if you're listening through iTunes or some such, is kasperthompson.co.uk, K-A-S-P-A-T-H-O-M-P-S-O n.co.uk I'll put links there to both MBO and the Bodhicitta Foundation and you can find information about my therapy practice and also links to the Buddhist temple that I run here in Malvern. Thanks to you for listening and I hope you'll join me again soon. Um, I never know whether I should trail the names of the guests that I've got in case something goes wrong and we don't manage to get together. Anyway, I am looking forward to a conversation with somebody next week and hopefully you'll join me soon. That noise is why I should have my mobile phone turned off when I'm recording. Anyway, uh, thanks again and hopefully speak to you soon. (laughs) 